Cancel culture, aided by big tech, big media, and big corporate, is making many Christian readers and creators feel unwelcome in mainstream culture. Whether it's publishing or social media, many are getting forced out to the margins of digital society. Upon seeing this retreat, some would say, good, let them go. And it's not just critics saying that. There's a growing awareness that Christians may need to create their own separate enclaves. But what does that look like and will it work? We'll explore that today. Welcome to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com. We explore the fantastical worlds of fiction for the hints and signatures of biblical truth. I'm Zachary Russell, a writer of science fiction and of nonfiction for Lorehaven. Stephen Burnett is out this week, so I'm joined instead by a special guest co-host. Hello there. My name is Austin Gunderson. It's a pleasure to be back on the Fantastical Truth podcast. It's good to have you, Austin. So for you, our listener, Austin is our review chieftain for all the books in the Lorehaven Library. He's our main reviewer. We've had Austin on before to talk about Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness. Yeah, so today's episode might sound a little similar to our last two episodes, but the majority of our discussion is going to be about big ideas for Christians to consider. How can we respond not simply reactively to cancel culture, but creatively? There's some recent cancel culture news we'll discuss. Of course there is, as there's always cancel culture happening on social networks and and otherwise. But before we get into that, I thought it would be good to just sort of define a little bit better what this phenomenon is, because I've I don't know about you, Austin. I've been hearing so many more people talk about the whole idea of cancel culture recently, and it's gone beyond the binary of, yes, it exists. No, it doesn't exist. Um, It's more of like, what is the nature of it? What are the origins of it? What is the actual impact of it? Here's how I see it. Cancel culture is driven by safetyism and sort of a sense of paternalism. Uh, The common thread is a fear of harm. Anything that fits a certain definition for offensive is therefore harmful and dangerous, and we need to get rid of it before it can harm anyone. And what I'm trying to say here is there might be a good intention behind it, but I think that good intention quickly gets sort of twisted into this authoritarianism, which is a fancy word for people that want to set themselves up as the controllers of society and culture. So it's not enough for these offensive things to be confronted or sort of scoffed or debated or problematized or whatever. They have to be erased. And I I think that's really what gets to the core of what's going on. There's no presumption of innocence. There's no due process. There's, there's no room for growth. And I think that's what really rankles people. You know, we, we live in a society very much infused with Christian values of, of grace, forgiveness, of transformation, redemption. And that all seems to be lacking from these cancel culture episodes. I think we have to do a comparison here. A lot of people have brought up the religious right of the eighties and nineties, uh, the Disney boycotts of the, I guess it was the Southern Baptist church. I don't know. I wasn't Southern Baptist at the time. And someone brought up a good point the other day on uh, a discussion about this. I was in, they said, you know, imagine if the religious right, uh, if that movement had the power to cancel Madonna or Harry Potter, would either of those exist today? I, I don't think so. And so the the point was made that we haven't really seen the level of societal power with this movement before. We've certainly seen boycotts. We've certainly seen people trying to cancel things, but I, I don't think it's been as effective as what we're seeing today. Mike Duran wrote a really good article about all this on Lorehaven. It was called Militant Secularism Could Force Christians to Create New Subcultures. That's providing a lot of the subtext for our discussion today. And we'll link to that in the show notes. He draws upon historical observations like in communist countries when things get erased from society and people. So I, I think we have to be honest that there isn't really a kind of both sides do it argument here. There is a very particular, very strong force at play right now that we haven't really seen before unless you go back into some of the darker sides of history that have happened so Austin, any thoughts right away about you know, what cancel culture is? What are we even talking about when we say this? Well, it, it's interesting because like you've just expressed, define cancel culture as, you know, the act or the propensity to, you know, cancel things that you don't like. And that's what people, you know, conservatives in particular today uh, rail against. But if you look at this 
phenomenon historically. Cancel culture is the norm for most human societies, you know, throughout known history. The problem is which culture is deciding what gets to be canceled. I mean, everyone has standards, right? Everyone has boundaries of acceptable discourse. I mean, we can all think of something that, you know, we can all agree is, or most of us anyway, is, you know, shouldn't be acceptable. Obvious forms of of abuse that our society can still, you know, have a collective opinion on and be in agreement about. But I think what Christians are reacting against today is the consequence of losing the culture and now no longer having any power to decide what is or is not acceptable. You mentioned Madonna. Can you imagine someone like Madonna becoming a cultural, being allowed to become a cultural phenomenon in the 1800s? No, you can't. Because (laughs) Christian mores held sway back then. And the people in charge of, you know, media in that day and age were typically Christians who had shared values that would then govern, you know, what they platformed or deplatformed. And today, typically, the people in charge of media are not Christian and do not share those values, do not share those mores. And in fact, oftentimes subscribe to a worldview that is anti-Christian, like dialectically opposed to the Christian worldview, and very strongly a proponent of values that are completely incompatible with Christianity. You know, uh, the Christian sexual ethic is now bigotry, right? In the eyes of the people in charge of most of the mega corporations that you know, determine what people can say to each other on the internet, on, on social media platforms. So I think it's less a problem of some sort of abstract procedural value that, oh, everyone should be able to say whatever they want, you know, absolute free speech. That has never actually existed anywhere in the world. <laughs> you know, maybe on a pirate ship somewhere, but, you know, then you had to, you know, bow to the captain. There are always rules in place. There are always boundaries. The question is, where are those boundary lines drawn and who gets to draw them? Uh, I think we can all agree that life would be a lot more fun if we were all living on pirate ships. <laughs> Sounds a lot better than my uh, my quarantined home right now. So Yo, ho, ho. But I think you bring up a good point, is that it's really about who has cultural power. And, you know, again, as much as we would say, oh, well, the religious right had all this cultural power, they couldn't really get rid of the enemies that they had, unlike the, how you said, the Victorian era uh, people in charge could. And so, a lot of people have said, you know, the, the Christian cultural power is on the decline. We're in a post-Christian nation. That's the big idea behind Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, is that how can we first acknowledge and then cope with this reality that we're living in a post-Christian society? I think the mistake that a lot of people make is that society is neutral or that the tools of culture of, are neutral. And there's always someone behind it. Like no, nothing is really neutral when, when humans are in charge. I don't know about if robots are in charge, if things would still be neutral, but let's not go there. Um, I I think it's a, it's a battle between cultures. I remember after 9-11, uh, President Bush made this statement. He said, we're not in a uh, battle between civilizations, but a battle for civilization. Does that sound right, what he said? That sounds like something he would have said, yeah. Yeah. And I know that that you know, got a lot of criticism, analysis, and whatnot. I think what he was trying to say was, look, we're not at war with people that just have a different religion, but people that don't want freedom of religion to exist or, you know, freedom of association or just freedom in general. We're we're at war for freedom or against freedom, basically. Well, good thing we won that war, huh? (laughs) Right. I have so much freedom. It's just oozing out of everywhere. I think what President Bush was trying to do more precisely was draw a different boundary line. The boundary line that everyone was looking at was the West versus the Muslim world. That was sort of the stereotype reaction people had at the time. And I think President Bush was trying to draw a line orthogonal to that, saying, well, there's people who want freedom and people who want authoritarianism in both camps, you know, trying to peel off some support from the other side, so to speak. And I think that's probably a more realistic outlook, although I would differ about where that line would 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 be drawn. I think, you know, there are differences obviously between a, a theocratic Muslim society and a you know quote unquote secular Western society, but yeah, he, you know he was trying to divide and conquer in that sense. And there's there's some sense of that that's wise. It's like, well, we're trying to build a society that's pluralistic, that's open to 
you know, different, uh, different points of view, different religions, but this sort of thing has never really been done before if you look at history. And so uh, a lot of people would say, well, that's kind of leading to our demise now because secularism is not neutral. It's a, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, basically some, some sort of religious force will take over. And a lot of people have likened the cancel culture phenomenon to a religion of some kind. So this is a quote from Spiked Online, this article that says, quote, the claim that critics of cancel culture are obsessing over random examples might hold some water if there weren't so many examples. Since the Black Lives Matter protests exploded last year, the hitherto esoteric idea that all culture must be cleansed in order to bring about a just society has gone mainstream and led to countless cancellations. This has created a climate in which companies are either folding instantly to absurd demands or scrubbing their own output without anyone really having to ask, which is handy for the cancel culture deniers who get to proclaim, oh, no one called for this to happen, while also basically supporting it, end quote. So that leads us to our first example of Dr. Seuss. Uh, the uh, Seuss Foundation sort of quietly, but sort of publicly decided to cancel, was it five or six of their own books, of Dr. Seuss's books? And um, we're not going to go too much in the details about what was in those books. That can be a debate for another time. The more interesting thing to me about this case, Austin, is that they tried to get ahead of this. You know, and and, and this is kind of what this spiked article is saying. Oh, well, it's not really cancel culture. They just, they did it themselves, right? They decided to not publish those books. They've, they've wised, you know, they've progressed or grown up. Is that really what's happening here with Dr. Seuss? Well, I think there's one element of the story that belies that, which is uh, it wasn't just the Dr. Seuss Enterprises organization that decided to cease the publication of these titles. Uh, eBay, immediately after that announcement, banned the resale of copies of these books that people had already purchased in the past. eBay went through and scrubbed all the pending sales. You know, everyone jumped on eBay, right, to sell these books at a markup. <laughs> and eBay said, nope. Nope. Uh, these are now uh, officially deemed offensive material. And obviously we can't have offensive material, right? <laughs> I mean, let's, let's think about the implications of this, right? This is a coordinated effort across platforms that ostensibly have nothing to do with each other, right? It is in that sense, a conspiracy in full public view. And the implication being anything that eBay deems to be offensive and you know, whether or not you think that these old Dr. Seuss titles are offensive, uh, not, there's no animosity there. It's just, you know, this is how this culture used to be presented in the West. It, it's, a, it's a very mild form of offense, you know, even, even today. And no one was complaining about it beforehand. You know, these are still relatively popular titles. I know they're not popular by Dr. Seuss standards, but they're still in print, or they were. None of that mattered. And they instantly go on a blacklist. Well, what else is considered, you know, offensive nowadays? Can we think of some examples that would fall afoul of this new arbitrary standard that whatever the powers that be behind, uh, you know, for instance, eBay deem to be uh, hurtful towards people? You know, that's super, super generic and vague language. I, I can certainly think of some examples uh, that Christians might be concerned about. It, it's all in the eyes of the beholder. What is too offensive for someone to sell sell to someone else, <laughs> and and that's you know that's what's so interesting about this is it's not just oh you know we think we think these books are offensive to people so we don't want to publish them. It's everyone else sort of agreeing to that, like yeah, and no one else can buy them and no one can sell them, <laughs> uh, and just these books, right? It, it'll it'll stop with these books. No, no other books will ever. Oh yeah, the, the slippery slope is is very much a fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So back in 2019, there was a paper, a, a pseudo scientific paper, published all about the Dr. Seuss ethos or whatever, and it was making this argument that Dr. Seuss, not only in this this car, you know, with this drawing or with this book, perpetuated some offensive stereotype but that the trajectory of his books is harmful, like just the whole body of work. And so this paper argued, uh, for example, about representation, like are, are there are cultures represented equally in these books? And that's not really the way to analyze a fantastical world in a children's book of like, 
because first of all, most of the creatures are not even human. This paper was kind of made its own conclusion before it really went, and then it just went looking for evidence to go after it. There's a really long conversation about this if you want to watch it. It's on the Dark Horse podcast with Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang. They, they make the point, these analyses of Dr. Seuss, it's like they're counting things that don't actually help you learn anything. And the larger point is that these uh, elements of Dr. Seuss that people find offensive were part of his early work. And it was very much, um, I, I hate to use the phrase, it was a product of the time, but literally, if you look at publications around that time, this is these were the kinds of illustrations that were in them. Well, yeah. And if you go back even further uh, into you know the 1940s, you find him uh, producing uh, Allied war propaganda that's, right. I think, definitely uh, more, <laughs> more along the offensive lines. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he, he was a very complicated person. But the point that the Dark Horse podcast makes is that in his later books, like Horton Hears a Who, he dedicates that book to someone he met in Japan. The implication being that um, although he may have drawn or said or implied some things offensive about Japanese culture and Japanese people, he actually then took some time to get to know people in Japan after the war. Because, you know, the, the animosity towards Japan and Japanese people and even Japanese Americans was very high, unfortunately, and it led to a lot of terrible things but he really took the time to analyze that in himself and so then he wrote horton here's a who which is dedicated to someone there so it shows that he kind of grew out of some of those views and so the real problem here with canceling these books is that it erases the evidence that he changed and, and that he grew and that he kind of went through his own transformation and so that, you know, that's really the problem of cancel culture is it, it removes this evidence that anything is different now and that there's been any redemption. Just imagine if we had in our Bible, if we, if we cut out all the parts about David and Bathsheba, you know, or about uh, Moses killing the Egyptian or in, in any number of things that these heroes of our faith did that were horrible. And yet God worked in their lives, redeemed them. And that's turn them right. Into different people, and it also accelerates the need to find new things to cancel because once history has been erased and the things we find offensive in the past are now inaccessible, well, you know, there's an there are entire industries built around the need to purge your past, and so the past that needs to be purged will creep up on you. Right. Pretty soon, it'll be whatever you said last week. Yeah, <laughs> whatever you said yesterday. Because I mean, there's a social dynamic at work there where it's it, it really just fuels itself. It, it feeds off of itself and eats itself. There isn't a, a destination in mind necessarily. It's just a continual uh, progressive realization that everything about you is, is problematic in some way, even down to the you know minutest microaggression. Now, I'm more of a laissez-faire guy. Okay. So if a school says, hey, we don't want to read Dr. Seuss anymore, or we don't want to read these Dr. Seuss books, I don't really care. If a library, well, it gets a little trickier with libraries because they always have those banned book sections, right? But if a library is like, yeah, we're not going to carry this book anymore, look, I, I don't really care so much. But it, it's more the domino effect of all of these things together. And, and you know, it's sort of this mass moral panic that's going on because it, it, does, it never ends. Like you said, there's no destination. Um, just yesterday, I read that for, is it like National Reading Day? They usually read these Dr. Seuss books, like the, the president of the United States will read these Dr. Seuss books. And now he, he decided not to, and he read something else. Right. Uh, I mean, there's canceled a, the event or something. So the, yeah, the, the, there's a quote from president Obama in, I don't know, 2012 or something like that, where he literally says, everything you need to know about life, you can learn by reading Dr. Seuss. So, right. That was, you know, uh, less than 10 years ago, right. That was yeah. the prevailing opinion, you know, by the, 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 the head of, you know, the liberal side of politics in the United States. And I mean, could anyone at that time imagine that we'd be here? Where can we not imagine that we will go that we'll end up in, you know, next year? Yeah. I want to quote from a poem that Brett Weinstein uh, wrote called Let Loose the Seuss. Now I'm not going to read this whole thing. It's a few minutes long and we'll link to it in the show notes. But he makes a very good point in this poem that is, it really resonated with me. Now, if you're not familiar with Brett Weinstein, he is a uh, professor of evolutionary biology. He's not a Christian. 
he's more classically liberal. He was involved in this whole um, kind of student uprising at Evergreen State. So there's a lot you can read about for him there. Uh, really interesting person, but in his poem, he says, quote, like everyone else, Dr. Seuss had his flaws. He made some missteps. He got dirt on his paws, but he owned his mistakes, made amends and grew wise, illustrated his growth as his heart grew in size. Seuss was a model of how we should behave in confronting our flaws. We should all be so brave. And if we are able, put the lessons to rhyme, for a rhyme drives a point with a rhythm through time. End quote. Here's what I love about this, Austin. And here's why I think this is such a critical cultural battle. Cancel culture does not allow for growth and transformation and redemption. It, it's all about purity tests. It's all about conformity. And so, yes, if you look at some of these earlier books, if you look at some of these illustrations, depending on who you are, you might find them offensive. I'm, I'm not going to deny that. But is that the most important thing? Or is it important to study a man's life that went through a transformation? And if you look at the sum total of his body of work, it's incredible lessons you can learn from Dr. Seuss. And so what, what I think, it, it's not simply that these illustrations ran afoul of, of certain people in power. I think it's this whole trajectory of Dr. Seuss had some bad views and then he changed and now he's a different person. I think that in, that transformation itself is what's under fire from cancel culture because that is the, that is the Christian worldview in some, right? Is that God can redeem anyone and, and can change people. And I, I think that is a threat because that points to a higher power outside of kind of human control of culture and values. That's a good point. Let's talk about some different approaches for how Christians can respond to it. And I, I think we tend to, as Christians, respond sort of reactively. These things kind of blow up in the news and then we kind of share our opinions about them, but then we kind of just wait until the next thing blows up. But let's talk about, you know, kind of this first aspect of how we, how we tend to react, how we want to stay and fight. People speak up on social media. I've seen people all this week defend Dr. Seuss or at least talk about it. Uh, there were some other books that were canceled recently by Amazon, by Target, uh, that were about transgenderism. So what are some ways that, that Christians try to fight against this and, and how does that actually work? What do you think, Austin? Well, I think today, most Christians, when they react against something like this, they appeal to the authorities that are in existence, right? So it's like, well, call your, <laughs> call your senator, call your representative, try to call out the Dr. Seuss uh, enterprises organization or eBay, uh, you know, on your Facebook account or on Twitter. But you have to think, is this movement uh, to cancel various things driven by a motive that would be susceptible to that kind of petition? Is it actually driven by a profit motive, for instance? So if a bunch of consumers express their displeasure with this, with this action, then the company will rethink uh, its priorities because they might be worried about losing money. But I don't think it's driven by a profit motive at all. I think it's driven by ideology. It's driven by, in effect, religion. So if you're just crying to someone that their religion is different from yours, in effect, what kind of effect is that going to have? I mean, we really are in a war between cultures that are increasingly incompatible. Christian morality, obviously, is, is derided as uh, bigotry and intolerance and discrimination by people who do not subscribe to the same priors that Christians do. And that's going to, I mean, we're going to feel the bite of that. This isn't about making money. It's about promulgating a worldview and, you know, exerting social control to achieve specific social outcomes. And so I think Christians need to rethink their sort of knee-jerk response to this. We have to realize that what we're up against isn't just you know, people have been you know, sitting back and not paying attention and now they need to make their voices heard. They actually need to create space where their voices will matter. Because right now, you know, it's, it's like shouting into a void uh, because people are not listening because they already know that they disagree with you. Historically speaking, this has been a, a challenge and a dilemma for Christians for centuries. You think about the reasons that 
so many of the first settlers from Europe came to America, the Puritans and the Pilgrims, it was precisely for this reason. It was to escape uh, a society that whose cancel culture they did not agree with, right? And to set up their own society where they could establish their own norms uh, separate from, you know, the world, the old world that they left behind. Of course, you know, we've seen how that enterprise has degenerated over the time until we are where we are now. But this is a, a perennial problem uh, for anyone who's interested in creating a space where you can live as a Christian openly and honestly, as opposed to having to hide what you believe and you, lest you be thrown in prison for it. And this is a real concern for any Christian who wants to do something like raise a family or form communal bonds and not have to hide and, and cringe in fear. It's funny because the sort of default response when Christians start talking about separatism can be, you know, something along the lines of, well, that's, you know, don't we don't want to be driven by fear. We want to confront the evil culture that surrounds us. We want to engage. We want to go on the offensive. And why are you talking about hiding away in your own little insular enclave? But I think that the motive is very different from that. I don't think that caricature is generally correct. I think the motive is more, well, if we stay in this prevailing culture that, you know, where the powers that be hate us and want to suppress what we think, then we're going to end up, you know, sort of cringing and cowering in our little huddles. We want to be able to live openly and honestly. And so we need to create our own space in order to do that. And so that is a, an approach to this problem that I think, you know, has a lot of historical precedent for Christians and needs to be considered uh, very seriously. Yeah. So one thing I've noticed is that when Christians try to fight against this cancel culture movement is they don't exactly know how to fight against it. When you take Dr. Seuss, there was a uh, well-known politician that got on YouTube and said, I'm going to read from Dr. Seuss, except he read from The Cat in the Hat. <laughs> and that was not one of the books that was on the chopping block. Right. Um, now, now there's some analysis, there's some kind of cynical analysis that's like, well, the whole reason the Dr. Seuss Foundation preemptively canceled these other six books is because they knew that The Cat in the Hat is under fire, like I said, from that pseudoscience paper from two years ago. And so they, they said, well, they're, they're coming for the cat in the hat. Let's just give them something else. Let's give them these kind of sacrificial lambs. Like, we, we don't care about these books. They can have those. Because that always works. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, and so I, I, I looked at the, the response to that, of that um, senator reading the cat in the hat. And I'm like, well, okay, that, that's sort of a good idea. It's like you're saying, I'm not afraid to associate myself with Dr. Seuss. But again, you notice that he's not reading the book that was canceled. And so that was what people are quick to point out. Then there's other people that pull out the book and they're like, okay, well, so what? It, it's a, you know, it's a product of his time or it's just, it's just an old fashioned thing. Or, you know, it didn't really hurt anyone. Like people try to, I don't know, I guess downplay what, what, what the cancel mob is angry about. And I, I don't think that really works either because you're not taking it seriously. Like you're sort of deflecting uh, or, or others will say, well, you know, the way we got to fight against this is just fight for absolute free speech, no matter what, you know, no matter who it offends, just grow up, get over your feelings, whatever. And okay. I mean, <laughs> there's people that definitely are geared towards just fighting that way. And God bless them. Look, there's a place for that. But what I'm suggesting is that we have to fight for what's at the core of this. And, and that comes from being honest. Like, yes, Dr. Seuss drew some things that people found offensive, but is that the end of the story? You know, does that define his whole life? Does that invalidate that whole book or all of his books or, 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 or books, period? Is there a bigger story going on? And, you know, the, the way we review books with Lorehaven and, you know, Stephen talks about this in his book, The Pop Culture Parent, which is that, okay, you have to identify the idols. You have to identify the sinful actions or activities or mindsets in a book. And then you also have to analyze a book for the common grace that's, that's present there. And if it's a Christian author, how their Christian worldview is spelled out in that book. That holistic approach is, I think, that's our weapon as Christians is to say, 
look, th- this moment doesn't define someone's entire life. Like we can't live like that. It, if we were to have that sort of mindset towards everyone, like we would just obliterate all of society. The proper way to fight cancel culture is to fight back against the impulse itself to just ba- basically culturally execute someone over whatever the offense is. I don't think we should get drawn into the, you know, arguing wh- whether something was racist or bigoted or offensive or harmful. I don't think that is really even the point. I think the point is to say, okay, you're offended. Others are not. But at the end of the day, we shouldn't, you know, exile people and we shouldn't exile books. But as you've said, Austin, (laughs) there's always someone in charge of culture. There's always forces at play. I think we like to believe this. Well, real free speech has never been tried, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't know that that's really going to (laughs) work. Yeah. In a sense, I don't think that real free speech, you know, in in absolute terms is even possible Um, because, you know, let's say you have a society that, that has specified that, you know, anybody can say anything that they want to. Well, what if somebody starts saying that, well, we should all only say what I think. And what if that person gains a following? It's like, it's boom, it's gone, right? I mean, even an absolute free speech society, you have to enforce in authoritarian terms, right? You have to stop anyone who would realize a different vision for society. It's just sort of baked into the entire problem. But I I think um, you make some good points, but I think in terms of the rationale that's being offered for canceling, you know, these books and many others nowadays, you mentioned the uh, books on transgenderism, whether from a Christian point of view or, or from a child psychology point of view, the rationale that's being advanced to justify banning these sorts of books is, well, they offend people. They make someone of a different ethnicity uncomfortable. They make someone of a different, you know, sexuality, quote unquote, uncomfortable. They make someone with a different uh, gender expression uncomfortable. I think, you know, cancel culture on a, on a baseline level is impossible to eradicate. There's always going to be some level of cultural canceling, you know, boundary enforcement. But if that is our boundary, if our boundary is anything that offends a, a given protected group that of course is defined by you know, who, well, not, not Christians in this, in, you know, in our society today, if that's our standard, well, it offends someone, so we can't publish it. Christians need to wake up to the ways in which that is already being weaponized against them. I mean, you think about the very concept of sin itself and the, the, the basic Christian belief that we are, you know, our actions are offensive to a holy God and we need to repent. I mean, that, that is the, the concept that's ultimately in the crosshairs here. Um, this is all leading towards the annulment of Christian morality and the institutionalization of the idea that, you know, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to be from your heart, whatever that means is, is good. And anyone who would say otherwise is evil and probably a Nazi. We're very swiftly heading there and we're already there in many ways. And so I think we have to be careful, you know, even discussing this, it's like, well, it was offensive. Yeah, I agree. But is that criteria enough, you know, and if you, you know, try to argue it on the merits, well, it was offensive or it wasn't offensive, we have, to, we have to have a little foresight and see where this is heading. Christians believe very many offensive things uh, that are offensive mm-hmm. to very many people. And so that's what's going to get canceled if, if offensiveness is our criteria. I think what we have to acknowledge is that it's not simply that a lot of people complained about these books, but that the the big companies like the big tech, the big media, big corporate kind of collusion, they got together and they said, okay, these books are gone because a few companies control the vast majority of online sales and online communication. And so I, I think we have to be honest as Christians that, all right, you know, we are part of a system now that it's, it's not quite a monopoly or duopoly, but the vast majority of our online space is in the hands of a small number of companies and CEOs. So that leads us to our second approach here. Instead of staying and fighting against this kind of cult, these cultural trends, maybe we should just exit these common platforms for, for social networking or for ebooks or for online sales 
maybe we should just exit the mainstream ones that everyone's heard of. And maybe we should just join some alternative ones. You know, these, these are these lesser known ones that are sort of in the news now because everyone's flocking to these platforms. So, so parlor was the first one that came up in this regard. If you follow the news about parlor, you know that they, they got canceled by the Apple app store, the Android, uh, whatever the Android app store is called. And then from their hosting service from to Amazon. Okay. So then there's Gab. Gab was already taken off the app store a few years ago. Now the new one is MeWe. There's also one called Minds. So Austin, I set up accounts on all these platforms. I was just like, well, it couldn't hurt to have an account everywhere. That's uh, first of all, I, I try to have the same username everywhere. Uh, so I'm ZT Russell on every platform. And my thinking was, subscribe, first of all, subscribe. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Click like smash the like button. There you go. <laughs> um, so my my thinking was, I just want to reserve that name everywhere to have my own identity there, so that someone doesn't like impersonate me or something. Um, that that was my first thought. But then I thought, well, you know, why put all my eggs in one basket? What if I get deplatformed somewhere? I might as well have somewhere else to go. And hey, millions of people are going to these other platforms now to the point where they're having trouble keeping up with all the traffic. So maybe we should just go to one of these other kind of smaller networks. What do you think about that, Austin? Well, yeah, that's a question of uh, separatism again, but in this case, digital separatism, Mm -hmm. because, you know, the idea originally about the internet was that it was going to be this sort of wild West uh, free for all where anybody could say anything to anybody else and, you know, free association and uh, free speech. But turns out the internet is actually this really complicated thing that it's hard to manage. And so it's, you know, it's not just that people traded uh, security for freedom, uh, you know, or, or they traded their freedom away f- to get security. They traded away to just get convenience. <laughs> I mean, who wants to set up their own website, you know, from the ground up without using you know, a website hosting service? Yeah. What's your and, IP address, Austin? Do you know it off right. the top of your head? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Social media, you know, takes it, you know, one step further. It's like everyone's on the same website and they can talk to each other there. So, I mean, obviously this is super convenient, but it puts us at the mercy of these megatech corporations that, you know, in many cases, in most cases now, do not share our values and actively enforce their values, which are in many cases uh, opposed to ours as Christians. And so, yeah, we, we're in the situation where we're living in, in, their, in their world and playing in, on their playgrounds, and we have to abide by their rules. The drive to find your own space online that, that you control to a larger degree or that is controlled by people who are closer to your worldview is very real now and uh, very crucial. Yeah. Now, some of the uh, pushback I've seen about uh, Gab in particular, because uh, this was just in the news here in Texas, our our governor came out in a video just kind of randomly, and it was like, uh, we stand against anti-Semitism, which, hey, of course, we should. And he said, uh, and and so we, we are opposed to how Gab is promoting that, and we've pulled the... Uh, our uh, our party platform off of Gab for that reason, and everyone just kind of did, huh? <laughs> um, wait, so so Gab itself is an anti-Semitic platform, and so if it was, then why was your political party there in the first place? <laughs> and is that all that's there? And then you know, so people start doing these breakdowns of like, well, you know, by volume, <laughs> you can see this content way more on the other mainstream networks. I just look at that argument going, well, you know, people say like, well, why would I go to Gab or Parler or whatever? That's where the Nazis are or something. And I'm just like, well, okay, bad people are kind of everywhere in a sense. And is the argument that there's more of them there or that they're more tolerated there? And and I just look at it like, look, if there are bad people there, well, then, hey, we need Christians there. We need the gospel there. Let's go. <laughs> Let's change it up. <laughs> you know, like, again, it's just like, why are we accepting the status quo of, of these things? Like, why don't we see that as Christians, we're salt and light and we should go everywhere? I've joined uh, just all kinds of groups before Austin. When I was in college, I would just go sneak into the atheist and agnostic uh, society meetings. And I just go there and listen and just try to 
try to meet people and talk to them. Um, sometimes I would speak up. Sometimes I would just talk to people afterwards. But I, I don't think we should be afraid of joining any community uh, because I, I don't see Jesus doing that. I don't see the apostles doing that. I see them going to very hostile and very dangerous places with the gospel. And even now, missionaries are in every country in the world. So uh, yeah, that argument kind of falls apart. I think there's sort of a baked in optimism with this, that maybe that's the, the more important thing to analyze here is it, that there's this, um, uh, even just today, I saw a discussion where someone was saying, oh, you know, I, I got censored for this post. I don't understand it. This is so frustrating. And someone was like, well, why don't you just go to MeWe? Like we have a group on MeWe. You just go there. And I thought, well, okay, that's not a bad argument. You know, if there is less um, censorship over whatever in it, by the way, it wasn't even an offensive joke. So I'm like, well, okay, if MeWe has less uh, algorithmic driven censoring, well, then maybe that is a better place to go. But there's, there's, uh, I mentioned there's like this baked in optimism of it'll never change. <laughs> it'll always be that way. And well, time will tell, I guess. I wonder if that is the right view of it. If these things become more popular, things could probably change. Facebook today is not the Facebook of 2009. You know, it's entirely different over just a little over a decade. Oh yeah, no, much more uh top-down, centrally consolidated, everything is is subject to algorithmic analyzation and uh, you're very much a product <laughs> participating on that platform. Gone are the, are the carefree days of throwing sheep. <laughs> or poking people. Remember poking? Oh, pokes, yes. <laughs> I'm kind of glad that that's gone. <laughs> <laughs> right. To me, this gets to the root of what the problem is, is that in either case, you're relying on a centralized system. You know, you're using a network that someone else has set up and that person or those persons have control over it. Maybe that is the problem in and of itself. Uh, maybe we need to start looking for approaches that are decentralized, more democratized or more peer-to-peer. And not just in social media, but in books. You know, the major <laughs> emphasis of this podcast and maybe banking. Everyone is talking about crypto nowadays, right? So let, let's talk about this. Uh, this will be kind of our last section here. Um, maybe Christians should pave the way to create new communities, like completely new types of communities. So not just a group on MeWe or a, a group on whatever, Parlor or something, but maybe we should create entirely differently structured systems. So we're going to get sort of into the weeds here uh, to our listener, but bear with us. We're not going to go too deep, uh, but we'll link to some things if you really want to jump into this. But there are some really exciting technologies coming out now that, uh, like I mentioned, Bitcoin or crypto, you know, this whole idea of a blockchain. But essentially, there's, you know, what, what we're so used to is a top down, like you said, Austin, a top down networking system, a top down sales site, a top down ebook system or something. But perhaps there is a way where where there isn't a central authority. Perhaps there's a way where anyone can talk to anyone with no one in between, with no gatekeepers in anywhere in the world. And I so I kind of think of this this whole decentralized networking kind of like how ham radio allowed anyone to talk to anyone. And there there was no one that got in between. And to and to some extent like if you have a phone, a, a landline phone, you can call anyone in the world and no one can get in between that. Now, obviously you have to know their phone number and then that there's some challenges there with long distance, but, but Austin, here's, here's kind of my vision is that Christians are seeing this problem, you know, in mass of too much centralized control over communication, literature, sales. Maybe we are the ones that can create these realms for others. And in a sense, we get to be Amish cyberpunks. Right. And it takes effort. You think about the Amish, which, you know, obviously is a great example of a self-sustaining separatist community that doesn't depend on somebody else's infrastructure in order to live their lives, you know, in their own way, according to their own precepts, uh, religious precepts in that case. And I'm a, a bit of a Luddite myself, but obviously not to that, to that level. And it's very hard work because, like I said earlier, 
we've traded our freedom away for convenience. And it's very hard to let go of convenience. It's hard to let go of the convenience of, you know, getting all of your earthly needs piped in from some mega corporation that, you know, may decide to cancel you. And then where are you at, right? You must bend the knee at that point or suffer in catastrophic ways. The same thing digitally for the convenience of, you know, for instance, the network effect, for the convenience of being where the people are on Facebook or Twitter or any of these large social media platforms, you are increasingly giving up the right to say what you believe and to preach the gospel, frankly. The very the very first element of the gospel is you are a sinner in need of a savior. And that, of course, is very offensive to many people. It's hard to break out of that cycle of greater and greater dependency. It requires effort. It requires sacrifice. In, in the case, I'm thinking now of some alternative social media and uh, internet engagement platforms. You know, some of the ones that you've mentioned are a little less dependent on, for instance, you know, I think Gab is now off of AWS and they're on their own right. servers now because, you know, it's cancel culture all the way down. So you have, yeah. to, <laughs> you have to have your foundation on a rock somewhere. Uh, otherwise, it's, you know, the rug is going to get pulled out from under you ultimately because all of these mega corporations are of the same mind about these things you know just like ebay uh aws is like oh well you know parlor is bad because you know in that case uh, president trump might jump to it and then everyone would follow him and we don't want him to have a platform right because right in that case he'd said something that twitter deemed to be uh, inexcusable so uh, aws sided with twitter and then oh, boom an entire social media platform just gone right there are ways to overcome that to an extent one of the, the the platforms that i've been interested in lately is called urbit it's pretty small still but the idea is it's your own personal server from the ground up you own digital real estate in a sense that no one can pull the plug on you because it's disconnected from the giant convenience engines that now run most of the internet the startup cost in terms of effort is very high <laughs> you have to you know get into your uh, terminal and your computer and, and input some code. And, and it's necessarily that way because if it was convenient, then somebody else would be controlling it because they would be the smart person doing the work and you would just be you know reaping the benefits of their work. So there's always this trade-off. And this has been the case since time immemorial. You know, the, for the Puritans and the pilgrims to come across the Atlantic Ocean and, and brave death in a thousand different forms just so that they could exercise their religion free from cancellation required great courage. And that was a decision that many people did not make. And maybe they or their descendants decided that that was the right or the wrong decision. But, you know, it's a, it's a, hard, it's a hard decision to make. And it's even a, it's a harder decision to, to see through because it requires so much effort. So, I mean, you really do have to feel that this is very important before you'll take the necessary steps to get out from under the thumb of the person who wants to cancel you. Yeah, I've been looking at another digital solution called Inrupt and a product within that company called Solid. And so the, the idea is that um, instead of all your data living on Facebook servers or even you know Gab servers, your data belongs in this uh, pod. And it, it's something that you have complete ownership and control over. And, and anyone that you give access to it they only have as much access as you give them to it. The interface is, you know, it's complicated for even me to understand. And I studied telecommunications engineering. But the interesting thing about Interrupt is that it's being created by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who is hailed as the father of the internet. And so he's, I've listened to several interviews with him. He's talked about, look, you know, we're, we're way past the original idea for the internet, like you said, of just anyone being able to talk to anyone with no one in between. And we want to put that autonomy back in people's hands and that power of connectivity back to the end user. You know, I, I like to joke about when the internet was fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, there were some not so fun things about it. Like the, the first kind of interneting thing that I was exposed to were bulletin boards much like Reddit is today, like you, you could join these bulletin boards that were discussions about whatever. And it was usually very fan based. So maybe it's a bulletin board about a particular book or series of books, or maybe about sports or whatever other topic interests you. 
Um, so everything was sort of affinity based and, uh, our friends at Narnia web, we've, we've had them on the podcast and, you know, they are still running a very vibrant community at Narnia web, all about the Narnia books and movies. So that's really fun to just go to those communities, talk about these things you like, but it's still very fragmented, right? And most of the time people aren't using the real names. So then there's that, that lack of convenience, you know, and you can see why these, like you said, we, we pay the price of admission is our. Is our control and our freedom, and we get convenience in exchange. What Berners-Lee is trying to create is something that is as convenient as the mainstream social networks, but is is giving you as much control as possible, like the old internet was, like where you could just talk to anyone anywhere. That's great. Yeah. So I um, I haven't signed up for this yet. It's again, I'm just still trying to make sense of it because, like you said, Austin, it like the Amish know building your own is very hard. Like despite how easy it looks in the weird Al Yankovic video, you know, Amish paradise, just building up a barn in the span of two minutes. um, (laughs) I'm sure it takes much longer than that. Much, much longer than music video. The actual hard thing is the mindset shift. So people have talked about social media as the digital town square. And I think that's a really good term to understand what, what we're talking about here. Because when you look in the book of Acts, you see Paul and you see the disciple or the apostles in the town square of those cities, like the physical town square. And what often happened? Mobs came and chased after them and beat them up and put them in jail and uh, killed some of them. I I think we have to realize that as Christians, we should go into the town squares. I don't think we should totally exit. Okay. This is just my opinion. I don't think we should totally exit from all these companies and networks we've talked about. But I think we have to realize that these town squares are not neutral and a lot of them have an agenda or at least they are uh, swayed by people with very opposite agendas than us. And so town squares have always been, if not hostile, not safe. But what have Christians always done? We've created our own networks. We've created our own communities. If you're a member of a local church, you are already part of a decentralized network. Right. So as we talk about the digital version of this, this is actually exactly what we're already doing as the church. You know, th- that's the model of evangelism and discipleship and spiritual multiplication is that we would build our own irregardless of what's allowed, irregardless, regardless <laughs> of what's allowed in the, the public town square. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of other networks I'm looking into, uh, to our listener, I I'd like to know if you've heard of these. I've, I've been looking at locals.com. I, it's not a dating service. It sounds like one. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of Hive, Society2, the Fediverse, and Mastodon. I don't know a lot about these, but if you've heard of these or if you've heard of Urbit or Solid and Interrupt, we'd love to hear from you. But I think the challenge, though, is that as interesting as these all are, there's the challenge of like open source standards. Uh, you know, for example, if SMS is a great example of an open source standard, anyone with a cell phone can text anyone else with a cell phone number. It's a standard that allows all kinds of phones to communicate. And I mentioned ham radio earlier. Maybe the technology isn't quite there to do this, but I think it's worth exploring. I think as Christians, we are, our very nature is to be pioneers to go to places that don't currently have a Christian witness and and bring the light and the salt of the gospel and of the Christian life into those places. So I, I think that once we get past that mindset shift, the technological aspect of it is the easy part. I, I think what we have to get past is this idea of, uh, oh, Christians have just as much of right to a digital town square as anyone else, and no one should get in our way. It's like, that's never been the case in, throughout history. Right. I want to talk about how this intersects with speculative fiction. Are there any examples of this uh, in, in Christian speculative fiction in particular, or just other uh, books that you know about Austin? Yeah, there, there are a lot of examples and I think there could be a lot more. I think this is an issue that Christians in particular uh, ought to be interested in and speculating about uh, in, in any setting. Obviously the the example I have to talk about first is all of the examples of this phenomenon present in in Tolkien. You know, if you've read the Silmarillion, you know about the legend of Gondolin and uh, how that how that hidden city fell. 
but that was an example of elvish separatism. Elvish, of course, the, the elves in, in Tolkien are, are famous for their separatism, which uh, sometimes is necessary and sometimes is uh, counterproductive. Uh, it's dealt with in a, in a nuanced way. Obviously, the um, enclaves like uh, Rivendell or uh, Lothlorien in, in The Lord of the Rings are very necessary to the plot because our heroes who are going out uh, into the heart of darkness, engaging directly with the enemy, bringing the fight, they need somewhere to rest and recuperate. They would not have been able to make it if they did not have a quote-unquote safe space for someone on their side. You know, like you said earlier, we as Christians need to be engaging on contested ground. We need to be entering the public square, even if it's controlled by someone who hates us and preaching the gospel. But, you know, if we're going to raise families, if we're going to uh, perpetuate ourselves that way, we need somewhere to retreat to after that is done. That's what we're, what we're talking about is, is about, is about creating that space where we actually can have our own mores uh, that, that hold sway. So you see that a lot in Tolkien. A great series of uh, sci-fi books written by a Christian author, uh, Lilia Rose Foreman, that deals with this in depth, this uh, idea of, of separatism and its challenges. Uh, it's the Shattered World trilogy. It's not, not exactly Puritans, but uh, it's a people group that are very similar to the Puritans, um, colonizing uh, an exoplanet and uh, making first contact and dealing with other settlers who weren't supposed to be there. It's like if there, there's a lot of um, parallels between the story and uh, the story of the uh, European colonization of the Americas. You know, it's what, like, what if Jamestown set up shop you know, across the river from uh, Plymouth Rock? There's a lot of uh, really, really interesting conundrums that these characters face, and uh, it's really, really great reading. There, there are a lot of ways that these sorts of dilemmas can be explored uh, by Christians, especially in speculative fiction. I mean, you think of you know, space colonization or um, all the different scenarios that you can set up in a fantasy setting to deal with these kind of uh, problems. Uh, so this is definitely a, uh, a terrain that's, that's ripe for the ex- exploration. So I had a conversation offline with uh, Elijah David from Lorehaven, who's written uh, some great articles about uh, fictional magic systems and other interesting topics. And he recommended a book, I don't know how to pronounce this, Svaha, S-V-A-H-A, by Charles DeLint. And um, he said that the main premise is that a nuclear environmental apocalypse happens in which Native American tribes had sequestered themselves inside domes, which separated themselves you know, physically from the larger world. And as such, they had the only clean air and water around. And then um, they would send uh, representatives out after so many years to see if it was possible or advisable to, to come out of these domes. And so that, that sounds like a very fascinating book. And again, I, I, I like these sort of examples to kind of help us understand a little bit better what's happening with the digital space out there. That does sound fascinating. Another example, not a, not a, a Christian author, I believe, but Hugh Howey's series, uh, Wool. Oh, yeah. All the titles associated with that series. Really, really fascinating exploration of the same sort of scenario, post-apocalyptic a society that's developed in a abandoned nuclear missile silo and their fears and their challenges in re-entering the outside world. Uh, really, really good stuff. Yeah. And Stephen and I were talking offline about the Left Behind series, the books that we still enjoy, even though whatever, it may not be our favorite books anymore, but about how the, um, the tribulation force creates these enclaves and cooperatives to, uh, well, okay, so they haven't taken the mark of the beast. That that was the uh, the only way to officially sell anything or buy anything was if you take the mark of the beast. And so all these Christians are like, we're not taking that. Black you know, markets. They, yeah, they had to they had to get organized. They had to have their own underground economy and society. And obviously, this is a very extreme end of where this is headed in some sense. But I think there's a lot we can learn from there in that. Hey, we we don't need permission to talk to each other in in our own channels or to create our own books. Stephen talked about maybe this is a time for us as Christians to first. I mean, this is a big emphasis of Lorehaven, right? To create our own subculture, to create books for one another, 
for our own decentralized societies, our own underground environments, metaphorically anyway, and just make books that we enjoy and that are for fun. And hey, maybe these would be great things to offer to the world. Like in the, um, uh, the book that Elijah's talking about, that these Native American tribes have these, they, they have the only pure resources in this desolate world. I don't know how the book plays out, like if they let people in or if they offer those resources or trade or whatever. I imagine something like that happens though. And maybe that's the unique power we as Christians could have if we have our own our own literature ebook system is that we can let people into that and say, hey, you know, you you want some you want some bootleg books here. <laughs> um some is that <laughs> right. But I, I think there's a lot of people that are just sort of tired of all of this authoritarianism and censorship. And they're like, you know what? I just want to read what I want to read. And I also just want to read things that are fun uh, because so much of what is getting published nowadays is, is propaganda. There's no other way to say it. It's right. propaganda for certain social norms uh, and, and cultural values, you know, secular messages. And I think there's a lot of people Christian or not, that are just like, you know what? I'm just kind of tired of this. I just want a story that helps me escape. That's why I'm even reading a book. I'm not reading a book to get yelled at or preached at. And so I think as Christians, this is Stephen's point, is we have a really powerful, incredible opportunity to break ground here and to offer those sorts of stories to people that, that want that. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened from the agenda driven <laughs> right. cultural norms. All right. And so the, the propagandized art and, and I will give you rest for your souls. No, that's uh, a great point because what's been the argument of everyone who has denigrated, you know, a Christian publishing and said, well, you know, I, I don't read that stuff. I, I go for my entertainment. I go to mainstream publishers. Why have people always said that? Because they don't want propaganda, uh, so to speak. They don't want some value system being crammed in their throat in an obvious way by the author. Uh, they want a story that unfolds naturally and organically. And historically speaking, the, the subculture of Christian publishing hasn't really offered that. The quote-unquote secular marketplace has been where people have gone to discover stories like that. Well, that's, like you said, not what's being offered by the quote-unquote secular marketplace anymore. Everything has narrowed to ideological conformity. You know, you have to tick certain boxes if you want your, your, your book to be promoted by, you know, the major publishers. You need, you know, so, so much of this or so much of that or so many asides about X, Y, or Z issue that's part of the culture war. And people recognize that they see it and they've seen it, you know, for many decades in a lot of Christian books and now they're seeing it everywhere. Well, this is a great <laughs> opportunity for Christians, right? To right. <laughs> tell, to, to, to tell stories that are not obviously laden with uh, ideological agendas. So Austin, uh, to, to close this out here, as Christians feel the cultural landscape tilting under their feet and and they see these changes happen and they're not really sure which way to which way to run away from this sort of cultural earthquake that's happening what do you think we need to do first just kind of in our mindset in our heart like how do we respond just internally and then what what are some of the first steps we should take sure i think the first response is what we've been talking about here recognize that the places we've thought of as public forums neutral um, impartial anyone can say anything they're not they're controlled by people who in many cases are diametrically opposed to the christian worldview so that's the first step is to recognize that you are embattled and you are in enemy territory so to speak and then i mean what is the christian response to their enemies well it's to love their enemies right pray for those mm -hmm. who persecute them yeah. we can't lose sight of the need of these people for the forgiveness uh, that christ offers and their need to be reconciled to god but we also can't give in to the the definition of loving your neighbor loving your enemy that the world shoves in our face which is just accept everything that they say that they are all you know all the time just knuckle under to the the definitions of, of words that are provided by the prevailing society. We love people by preaching the gospel to them, which, you know, involves revealing their sin to them in many cases. Now, not, you know, screaming in their face, but this is necessary. It's, it's speaking truth is, is part of 
of loving your neighbor, loving your enemy. So we need to love our own families that way, right? We need to raise our children in the nurturing instruction of the Lord. And to do that, we do need to build spaces where we can uh, institute Christian mores uh, without constantly having to be babysat by you know someone else who actually has control. The, the need is to do what Christians have always needed to do everywhere that they go. It's just that we've thought in modern in the modern West, we've thought that we had that, and we it turns out that we didn't. It turns out that we we traded away our freedom for the you know the porridge of convenience, and now we're waking up to the fact that oh <laughs> maybe maybe some more work is necessary here. Well, we need to uh, commit ourselves to doing that work for the sake not only of ourselves and our own families, but also for the sake of our witness in the world. In a society where it, over at Twitter HQ or whatever, you can hit a button and somebody's just whoop, gone, right? That's not a tenable situation, you know? You need to be able to create space for yourself where you can actually share your viewpoint as a Christian. Amen. Well, to you, our listener, we would love to hear what steps you're taking uh, in any of these categories we've talked about and how's that going. Uh, we'd love to hear other creative solutions to these uh, these issues that, that just sort of plague us today, and, and especially in terms of uh, getting to enjoy the books that we want and, and getting to share those books and talk about them. So what are you doing to address these issues? Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. Or if you go to the episode webpage from your podcast player, you can make a comment on the episode page on Lorehaven. So let us know what are your thoughts about this. And meanwhile, whether you are staying put in the digital town square, you're looking for alternative corners that are lesser known, or you're building your own spaces online, I think the first step, like Austin said, is we have to wean ourselves off the drug of centralized cultural centers that are guarded by these sometimes hostile gatekeepers. Find ways to break away from the mini-tentacled megacorp that's uh, towering over all these spaces. Stop looking for shortcuts to reach a large audience and to change the world. And look for ways to invest in your own network as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>